Please turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 12. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. We took a couple of weeks off to talk about Christmas and to focus on John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. And now we are resuming our time in Matthew. I'm titling this sermon, He Will Not Break a Bruised Reed, referring to Jesus, of course. And I'm going to read, just to kind of remind us where we were, I think Greg was the one that preached our last text. So I'm going to read Greg's text from a few weeks back, just to remind us of the context, and then I'll read through today's passage. This is Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 9, reading through verse 21. And this again is the word of the Lord. Matthew uh, chapter 12, verse 9. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Now today's text, verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles, He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, I do pray that as we look at this portrait of Jesus how He fulfills prophecy in a glorious way with His character, His person, His work. Uh, Lord, I pray that You would stir our hearts with the truth of these things, that You would open our eyes that so quickly grow dull and calloused to Your truths, and help us to peel back the veil and to see the glory, the jaw-dropping majesty of the person of Your Son as He is revealed in this passage that You have given us. And I pray that we would be encouraged, that we would be stirred to worship you, and I pray that we would bring all of our weaknesses and failure, and that we would bring it to the throne of grace to receive mercy and help in our time of need. pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Again, the sermon is titled, He Will Not Break a Bruised Reed, and I've got three points. And I also have the, the, the points are also on the group me as well, our church group me if you're in there. But I'll just tell you real quick the outline. So Jesus fulfills Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4, in three ways. So Jesus fulfills Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4, in three ways. And here are the three points. Number one, he is chosen by God and spirit filled. Chosen by God and spirit filled. Number two, that's in verse 18. Number two, he is humble and gracious. That's verses 19 and 20. He's humble and gracious, verses 19 and 20. And finally, Jesus fulfills Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4, by this, He brings us hope and justice. He brings us hope and justice, and that's in verses 18 and 21. 
So I have a fear as I start this sermon. My fear is that uh, we're going to get lost in the woods in my introduction. Okay, so my goal is to not get us lost. Let's, let's stick together and let, let's try to, uh, try to understand what's happening here. It's a little complicated to set the stage. It seems, strangely enough, about once every two years or so, maybe once every year or two, this issue comes up in a sermon and I sort of try to explain it, and it's always complicated. If you're just kind of hearing it for the first time, it's easy to get lost. So here's what I would like you to do just for a moment. I want you to hold your spot here and go back to Isaiah where we started the service. Hold your spot in Matthew 12. We plan to come back. And I want you to turn to uh, Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah chapter 49. All right, who is ready for the complicated part? I like to just get things going with the complicated part, and we'll move into some things that are a little easier to follow, I think, in a moment. But here's the complicated part of today's message, just right out of the gate. So Isaiah is a prophet writing in Israel uh, about the year 700 B.C., about the year 700 B.C., okay? In chapters 40 to 66 of Isaiah, he is mostly looking into the future uh, from where he's writing. He's writing in 700, and he is predicting, he knows that there's going to be something called the Babylonian exile, where Babylon comes in and cleans house and takes Israel out, that it finally is, happens in 586 when the temple's destroyed. He's looking past that to a restoration and return from exile that will be led by a certain individual called the servant of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord. Now, here's where things get a little complicated. And uh, all I can tell you is you, you really have to see this for yourself. I, I can't just explain it. You, you really need to, to, to look at it yourself to, 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 for this to make more sense. But if you look at chapters 40 to 66, and really this all takes place between chapters 42 and 50, uh, 53, what you'll see is this. You'll see that there, are, there is an individual called the servant of Yahweh, the servant of Israel, excuse me, the servant of the Lord, and it, this servant is also called Israel. And what's complicated is, it becomes very clear as you read that Isaiah is actually talking about two different individuals, even though he at first calls them by the same title, the servant of the Lord in Israel. Now, this is confusing because here's what you find out. At, one, one time, at certain points in Isaiah 42, for instance, Isaiah will say things very glowing about the servant of the Lord, Israel. He will speak of this person as if it was an individual man, and it will speak about this person as being essentially sinless and filled with the Spirit and always faithful and always righteous. And then later in the same chapter, he will speak of the servant of the Lord Israel as one who is deaf and cannot hear, one who does not have eyes to see, who constantly is unfaithful to the Lord. And you go, wait a second, I thought the servant of the Lord was faithful, and now the servant of the Lord is unfaithful. And then you go on further, and you see that the servant of the Lord now is again faithful, obeying the Lord. And it says things like this, Isaiah 50, the servant of the Lord... Has a, has a mind that is taught, he gives his back to those who strike and his beard to those who pull it out. And this is a sinless individual who's called the servant of the Lord, Israel, and he is taking the sins of others onto himself. And you go, that's, what is this? And then you keep reading. Imagine reading this for the first time before Jesus came. And you keep reading and you go a little further and you find again the most familiar passage, Isaiah 53. This individual had no, done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth, yet he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before the shearers is silent, he did not open his mouth, he dies taking the iniquity of the people, right? So what you find out is this, Isaiah is painting a picture of two servants of the Lord, two Israels, 
One is the nation in its unfaithfulness that keeps falling and failing and rebelling. And the other one, this puzzling, mysterious figure, also called the servant of the Lord, also called Israel, is distinguished from Israel, is sinless, and is taking the sins of the people. And imagine reading this when it was first penned, you would be puzzled. Who is this individual who is called the servant, who is called Israel, but is sinless and perfect and taking our sins? And if you put all of Isaiah together, although I don't think anyone was able to figure this out before Jesus came, I think it was possible. You could see how you could connect the dots earlier in Isaiah. What had Isaiah promised? We, we just talked about it with Christmas. I mean, many of you read these verses over the last few weeks. We're told, Isaiah 7.14, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. You will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Then Isaiah 9, there'll be a child born. We will call him Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You have this Davidic king who's going to come. And this Davidic king is going to be Mighty God. He's going to be Everlasting Father. He's going to be Prince of Peace. He is going to be the embodiment in a person of God's people, Israel. He is going to be the true Israel. He's going to be the true servant of Yahweh, the true servant who always obeys the Lord, unlike the servant, the nation, Israel. Do you understand? And what we see is this faithful servant of the Lord gets four songs. The four servant songs are given to him. One in Isaiah 42, one in Isaiah 49, one in Isaiah 50, and one in Isaiah 53 that we know so well. And those four songs, when you put them together, describe the coming Messiah. And that is the Lord Jesus, and that is who is being described. And if you just look here in Isaiah 49, uh, you can see a picture of the Lord Jesus. Pictures him here. Look at verse 3 of Isaiah 49. He said to me, you are my servant, this is Jesus, Israel, whom I have glorified, but I, but I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, speaking of Jesus, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may, may reach to the ends of the earth. Now again, one last complicated point, and then I'm going to move on from the complication. If you look at verse 3, do you see how this servant, this person is called my servant, verse 3, and you see he's also called Israel? Can everyone see that in verse 3? My servant Israel. And then if you skip down to verse 6, we are told that he is being raised up, my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. Here's the complicated part. This individual who is called Israel is being called by God to save Israel, which means this one who represents Israel is distinct from the nation Israel. Do you see? How can you bring back Israel if you are that nation? So again, if that makes sense, this servant of the Lord is distinguished from the nation and he will save the nation and he will also bring salvation to all the nations of the Gentiles. So we can turn back to Matthew chapter 12. With that in mind... Matthew sees clear fulfillment in the life of Jesus, and rightly so, of this servant of the Lord. Jesus is that servant. And I'll begin our first major point. That was the introduction. Here's the first major point of the sermon. Jesus fulfills Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4, in, four, in three ways. Number one, He is chosen by God and Spirit-filled. So let's look at verses 15 to 18. Jesus, aware of this, that is, that they were conspiring to kill him in verse 14, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him. 
and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles." You see here, Jesus, we've seen in these last few chapters, we've seen two things clearly. So stretch our memories back a few months. What we've seen is this. Jesus considers himself equal with God the Father. We saw that in chapter 11, verse 27, when he said, all things have been handed over to me by the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him, Jesus is putting himself on the same level as God the Father. We're also told in the Sabbath controversies that we looked at a few weeks ago, we're told that Jesus says of himself, something greater than the temple is here, referring to himself. Something greater than the temple is here. I am the true place where God dwells amongst his people. We're also told that he calls himself in verse 8 of Matthew 12, the Lord of the Sabbath. And he goes against all the traditions of the Pharisees to heal diseases on the Sabbath, which they think is unacceptable, which of course he knows is perfectly right to do. But here's the point. Jesus is showing his authority. No one knows the Father except the one whom I choose to reveal him. That's an astonishing claim of authority. He says, all things have been given to me by the Father. I'm greater than the temple, greater than the Sabbath. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. How is Jesus going to treat his struggling people coming from the position of such authority. What is he going to be like when he, when he acts? Well, here's what it happens. He finds out that people are conspiring against him. The Pharisees are in verse 14. And Jesus could have confronted them. I mean, can we be honest what Jesus could have done? Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you combine both what Matthew writes and what John writes and you put it together, here's what you find out. Remember this, when they come in to arrest Jesus on the night of his betrayal in the middle of the night, been sweating, as it were, like great drops of blood in the garden. When the, when the hundreds of people come in with Judas with swords and clubs and all these different weapons to, to get him, when that happens, remember, they say, we are looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, literally in the Greek language, he says, I am, not I am he. He literally says the words, I am. And when he says the words, I am, all these soldiers, several hundred of them, drew back and collapsed onto the ground. And then they, they regather themselves and they come to arrest him. In Matthew's gospel, we're told that as they come in to arrest him, you know this, he says, do you not know that at this moment I could call down from my father 12 legions of angels, tens of thousands of angels, and they would wipe out all these Roman troops in a moment. But how could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? So here's what we see. Jesus has unimaginable access to power and authority. He himself in his divine nature, he is omnipotent God. He is the eternal second person of the Trinity. How is he going to show himself? What kind of God will he be when he takes on flesh and sees opponents? He could call down fire from heaven like Elijah. He could put these men to death. He could do anything he wants, but what does he do? Matthew thinks it's remarkable what Jesus does, and I think we should think it is remarkable too. If you were God in the flesh and you found out someone was conspiring against you to have you killed, how might you respond? Jesus, in verse 15, aware he withdraws quietly, he continues healing all who come to him, and he tells them not to make himself known. He is being gentle and lowly. He is being gracious and humble in these moments. What are we seeing of the Lord Jesus here? He healed them all. 
His power could have been used to destroy the Pharisees in this moment, and he would have been perfectly just to do that. Instead, he uses his power to heal the weak, the sick, those with various diseases. He heals all of them. He does not use his power selfishly. He uses his power for the good and blessing of those around him. Why does he order them not to make him known? It always seems strange. You know, you read the gospel accounts, he'll heal someone of leprosy and say, don't tell anyone I did this. You're thinking, that's going to be a hard command to obey for the man who just got healed of leprosy. What's going on here? Well, Jesus knows that if he were to excite messianic expectations right now in this moment, virtually everyone who hears about it is going to misunderstand what kind of Messiah he is. And if people start hearing that the Messiah is here, the son of David is here, they're thinking a Goliath killer is here. They're thinking someone who picks up a sword and destroys the Roman soldiers is here. They're thinking political revolutionary is here. That's what they think of when they hear Christ and Messiah. She says, do not tell anyone yet about what I'm doing, but he knows the time will come when it will be right to go public fully with the message. And you know, in John's gospel, when does it really ring out fully and truly in all the three major languages of the empire? It rings the truth of the Messiahship of Jesus from the cross. Yes, I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. I'm not the one you're looking for. I'm not the one you're thinking of. I'm a very different Messiah. Instead of bringing a sword against the Romans, I will take the Roman spear. He hangs on the cross, and in the three major languages of the empire, here is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. I am the king, but I'm the king on the cross. I'm the king that takes the guilt of my people. I'm the king that stands humbly in the place of my people. That's the kind of Messiah that has come to save us. And Matthew sees this fulfilling Isaiah's servant songs. Look at his quote here again. Of Isaiah 42, look at verse 18 of Matthew 12. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. So Jesus is chosen by God and he is spirit filled. I realize we just talked about the Trinity in Sunday school for those who were there. I don't think we can over talk about the Trinity. So I'm going to say another word here about the triune God of the Bible. This is so basic, but it's so important that we grasp this and something unique to the Christian faith. We believe in one God, uh, eternally existing in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We do not believe that the Son is a created being of God. Okay, we we do not believe that. We believe in three persons, three eternal co-equal persons, one God. And here's what is so moving, believe it or not, about a doctrine like the Trinity. When we say things like 1 John 4 says that God is, is love. You understand, God can be love only if God is triune. If God is simply one person existing for all of eternity, God has no one to love in relationship. There is no, to have a loving relationship, you have to have a plurality of persons, right? You have to have multiple. So the Father and the Son are in a love relationship by His Spirit for all of eternity. God is love because God has not become a father when he created the son. He did not create the son. God has always been and has never been anything other than a loving father delighting in his son, who is the exact imprint of his nature, the reflection of his glory. He sees in his son his own glory and he delights in his son. The son delights in the father by the spirit for all of eternity. God is love because God is triune. And the Father has chosen His Son. He delights in His Son. And this is the same kind of language we see earlier in Matthew, you know where, at the baptism. This is my beloved Son. 
with whom I am well pleased. And the spirit descending in the form of a dove, blessing the Lord Jesus. In that moment, you are seeing three persons, one eternal God, and you are seeing into the very heart. It's like the curtain is being pulled back for a moment at the baptism of Jesus or in these texts, Mount of Transfiguration, same kind of thing, right? What do you see? You see into the heart of reality in these moments. The relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all of eternity, this relationship of love and perfection, you see here, and the Father has chosen the Son, He delights in the Son. Why does Matthew reference this concept right here? It's pretty obvious when you stop to look through the text. Mounting opposition is growing against Jesus in these months. Remember, John the Baptist was doubting Jesus. If John the Baptist is doubting, then what are the enemies of Jesus doing? They are working together to have him killed. The crowds are turning against him. The Pharisees are trying to have him killed. There's confusion amongst his disciples about what exactly he's going to do. They can't quite understand what this crucifixion stuff he's talking about is, which will become more prominent later in Matthew. So what is, what is, the author of Ma- what is Matthew, the author, doing? He's saying, listen, to all who read this, just because majority opinion and the crowd opinion turns against the biblical Jesus does not mean that God has turned against the, the biblical Jesus. God the Father has chosen this Jesus whom the crowds are rejecting. So here's the encouragement. Yes, our culture is growing increasingly hostile to the true Jesus, but listen, we should never be people who lick the finger, hold it up in the wind, and figure out where is the cultural wind blowing. I want to go with popular opinion, because popular opinion is so often wrong. And when the tides turn against the biblical Jesus, we should know the Father has not turned against that Jesus. That is His beloved Son. That is His delight. That's the, that's the servant He has chosen. And so God delights in Jesus, even when everyone turns against Him. You think of Paul. Let God be true, though every man were a liar. No matter what the world does with the Jesus of the Bible, no matter what the world does with the Bible, we will be those who stand with God the Father and delight in God the Son by His Spirit. We will love Him. We will make Him our choice one. We will make Him the one in whom our soul delights and with whom we are pleased. And Jesus is full of the Spirit of God. Uh, The the Spirit of God is not a force. The Holy Spirit is a He. Uh, He is the eternal third person of the Trinity. Jesus speaks of He who will come and be your, remember the word paraclete in John's gospel, your comforter. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson said this, I love this. He said, Jesus, it's, it's Thursday night before his death. Okay, it's the last supper. Of all the things Jesus could teach on to comfort and stabilize his disciples who are about to experience his horrific death and crucifixion, then experience the great fear of themselves being hunted down and killed because of their association with this man who claims to be the Messiah. They have all this trouble coming their way. Sorrow is coming your way. What does Jesus do to prepare them? He spends chapter after chapter. Remember John 14, 15, 16. He spends chapters talking about what? The Trinity. And he says what? The Holy Spirit is coming, the Comforter. He will comfort you. He will lead you into all truth. He will remind you of what I have spoken you. He will make sure that this is something that you can rely on and trust and delight in. He will give you my joy. That's what Jesus is focusing on. And we, we need to know no matter what is happening, we, we focus on the one whom God has chosen and the one whom God has filled with his Spirit. Point number two. Jesus fulfills Isaiah 42 because number two, he is humble and gracious. Look at verses 19 and 20. These really do deserve their own sermon, but, but these, these are wonderful and precious verses. Verse 19, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. I meant to bring a book with me. I think I left it at home. If you've ever heard of the Puritan paperbacks, 
I'm sure many of you know these, the short books of of Puritan works that are written in a very readable format. It might be 150 pages. There's a tremendous Puritan paperback. I have not yet finished it, but I I want to. Uh, It's written by Richard Sibbs, and it's called The Bruised Reed. I highly recommend this book to you. If you know uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think Scott referenced him uh, maybe last Sunday. Uh, Lloyd-Jones talked about he has a blurb on the back of the book. You know when a a Lloyd-Jones blurb is on the back of your book. You know, first of all, that book is old, and you know it's going to be a good book. Uh, Lloyd-Jones said on the back of the book, he said, this book came to me when I was very weary, and I was overworked, I was tired, and I I was essentially just in a very hard moment in my life. He said, Sibs was a balm to my soul and a great encouragement to me as he meditated on these verses for a whole book. That's what Puritans did. They took a sentence from the Bible, and they wrote 300 pages about it and it's just absolutely incredible uh, meditation on these things. And here is what you see in this uh, uh, amazing verse. All I can do, again, in this moment, is fall far short of what is in this verse. I I cannot do any kind of justice to what we're about to read here, but it is wonderful. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. That is a remarkable description of the Son of God incarnate. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not not quench. This is a remarkable metaphor. I, I don't have strong enough language to, to get this across. It is, worth, it is worth a lifetime of meditation here. What's a bruised reed? You can think of those little plants by the river, these reeds that grow by the thousands, right? And imagine a reed. Imagine a reed that's been bruised. They used to use reeds for pens and for various things back in the day. They would cut them down and use them for various things. But a bruise is when, as I think John Piper said, it's when, when a, uh, he gave an illustration. Imagine that you've got these kind of reeds, these plants with maybe flowers and things with them, and you arrange them, and someone gives them to you, and you put them on the, on the dining room table. And he said, imagine one of your toddlers comes by and grabs the edge of the tablecloth and pulls it, and the, the, the whole plant flops over, and it rolls over, and it splashes on the floor, and water goes out, and you just have these things laying there on the floor. And he says, you picked them up, and there were these beautiful plants, and you picked them up. He said, they've, they've, got, they've got a, uh, what did he say? They've got a hinge in them now. They just hang, they flop, right? And they're bruised, a bruised reed. And they're now useless. I mean, you, you've got to throw those things away. What can you do with them? You've got to cut them apart. They're, they're, they're of no use. They're, they're the most valueless thing in the world. There's 10,000, 100,000 reeds out there on the riverbanks, and a bruised one is completely useless. Throw it away. That's for the trash heap. Not for Jesus, right? Jesus comes along and he sees a bruised reed. This is a a damaged person. This is a person who is struggling, suffering. This is a person who feels like they are about to give up and give in. They barely have enough faith to hold on. They are a bruised reed, someone that another person might just spit upon. Just just get away from me. I don't want anything to do with you. You're going to be a bunch of concern and a bunch of anxiety for me. I don't want to have to think about that. I don't want to have to deal with you. And the Lord Jesus looks at this person who is a bruised reed, and it says here, he will not break a bruised reed. God incarnate sees a wounded, sin-riddled person who wants help and is barely hanging on by a thread. He says, that's the kind of person I've come to help. I'm not going to break you. I'm not going to curse you. I'm not going to stomp on you. I'm not going to forget you. I'm not going to trash you. I'm not going to get rid of you. The Pharisees would do that in a second with you. They'll tie burdens on you and they won't lift a finger to help you with it. That's not what I'm here to do. I am meek and lowly of heart and you will find rest for your souls. If you are burdened and heavy laden, come to me. I'll give you rest. What's a smoldering wick? I love this metaphor. You've got a candle. You know the metaphor. You can tell how it works. You've got the candle sitting there, and it's an old candle. And it's been used for a long time, and it's, it's, it's burning down to the very end. And the wick is barely sticking up, 
above, right? It's just barely there. And the flame is lit. It is burning, but barely. You can barely perceive it. There's maybe a small spark at the top, but it's just a little pencil of smoke coming up, and it looks good for nothing. Just snuff it out. Just, just turn that thing off. And Jesus says, not me. He comes to the person who is feeling like, I have very little left in the tank. I am about to run dry. I'm about to burn out. I've got nothing left. But there is a spark of real faith in Christ. There is a real dim spark of actual trust in Christ, but it's about to go out. And Jesus comes up and he doesn't say, I despise that. Why aren't you stronger than that? What's wrong with you? Get your act together. That's not the way Jesus talks to his own. He comes up and what does he do? He cups his hand around the outside. He makes sure that wind does not blow it out. He breathes upon it. He gives oxygen to it. And what starts to happen? The flame begins to increase. He begins to cut around the wick perhaps and move things out of the way to provide more room for the flame. And the flame grows brighter and stronger as time goes on. That's the Savior that we have presented in this text. Let me just give you a few verses here. This is from Psalm 34. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. The Lord doesn't despise the brokenhearted or the crushed in spirit. He is near. He is especially near. Richard Sibb says this, as a mother is tenderest to the most diseased and weakest child, so does Christ, the most mercifully inclined to the weakest. That's amazing. You know this, if you're a parent, when your child is sick, you care about all your children, you love all your children, but when that one child has that fever that's spiking, what do you do? All your affection and attention leans in. I will do whatever it takes to help this child. Uh, I, I don't want to embarrass him, but this is years ago. I don't even know if he remembers, but when Micah was very young, he, he had a fever that was spiking in 105 territory, which is just, you're freaking out as a parent. You don't, you're, you're, you're terrified. And so uh, I remember just distinctly, everything inside of you is saying, what do we need to do to fix this problem? I will do anything. What needs to happen? I, you love all your children equally, but when they're suffering, you lean in toward that child. Of course you do. What is this telling us about Jesus? When you are weak, he doesn't he doesn't get angry at you in that sense. What does he do? He leans in, he breathes life, he helps increase of faith, he helps increase strength. He says, if you're labored and heavy laden, come to me, that's why I'm here. I wanna unburden you. Matthew 9, 36, we heard a few months ago, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, the, you know this, the number one word used to describe Jesus' emotion is compassion. If you looked into my heart on the average week, I don't think you would see, see that that's my number one feeling for other people. There are times where it's there, but there are times where it's not there. And the Lord Jesus, it's always there. He is the perfect man. He is the God man. And what does he do? He looks out on the needy and the helpless and he feels compassion. And he tells a story in Luke 15, the prodigal son story, which again, you know the story, but as that prodigal son who wrecked his father's inheritance, goes off spending it on prostitutes, as the older brother says, he's out in the far country. He's now feeding the pigs. He longs to fill his stomach with the husk of the pig's food. Uh, he's in Jewish culture. Feeding pigs is as low as it gets. He smells of the pigs. He's in this unclean territory. And what does he do? He wants to go back to the father and Jesus comes up with this story. And what does he do? As the son approaches the father, the father sees him a long way off, and the father pulls up his garments, does what a, a, a man in that age at that time would not have done, which is to be publicly running through the streets, showing his legs, burying his legs, running toward the son, the son no doubt expecting the worst, and what, is the, what does he see? Before the son can finish his speech, he says, quick, bring the best 
robe and put it on him. Take my ring and put it on him. Put sandals on his feet. Uh, we're going to kill the fattened calf. We're having a party because this, my son, was dead. He's alive. He was lost. He's found. It's time to celebrate. The father doesn't say, do you understand what you've done to damage my reputation? Do you know what you've done with the money? I had to liquidate part of my estate and I had to sell it. I had to take the money. I had to give it to you. You wasted it on sinful partying. What's wrong with you? Jesus could have told a story like that, but he doesn't tell a story like that because he came not to break a bruised reed or to quench a faintly burning wick. This is a savior who is full of compassion and grace and kindness and love, and he is particularly tender towards those who are desperate and needy. You think of the father of the sick child who says, Lord, I believe. What? Help my unbelief. That's a bruised reed. That's a faintly burning wick. I do believe in you, Jesus. There is actual flame here, a little tiny bit of a spark here. There's real faith in you. I really do need you, but I know that I've got a long way to go. I believe, help my unbelief. There's a flame here, but it needs to burn brighter. Please help me. And the Lord leans in. He leans toward. He is compassionate. He is kind. I'll tell you who has a hard time understanding the Lord is the self-sufficient and the self-righteous. If we're honest, we are all bruised reeds to some, to some extent. Can we be honest here? There, there is bruising. There, there, are, there are flaws. There is damage within us. There is sin within us. All of us are bruised. There are only some of us who truly know how bruised we are. There are others who feel like, I'm not damaged a reed. I've got, I've got things figured out. I'm self-sufficient. I can do this on my own. I can pick myself up and carry myself. I can do what needs to be done. It is that individual who will not understand the gracious uh, provision of our Savior, and that individual will not flee to the Savior until he realizes how bruised and needy he is or she is. So I, I want to tell you, very often when you feel bruised and you feel like you've got little left, it's oftentimes when we're tempted to think, you know, I'm the last person that, that needs to go into Christ's presence. You know, if, if I had, had a better track record this week, I might deserve to go into Christ's presence. Well, now we're thinking like a Pharisee, right? We're thinking the wrong way. But it's actually those who realize their great need who are the closest to the throne of God's grace and who draw near to receive uh, his his assistance and his help. Let me just quote Richard Sibbs again. The bruised reed is a man that for the most part is in some misery, as those were that came to Christ for help. And by misery, he is brought to see sin as the cause of it. For whatever pretense sin makes, they come to an end when they are bruised and broken, seeing no help in himself. He's carried with restless desire to Christ, this spark of hope being opposed by doubts and fears uh, rising from corruption makes him into a smoking flax. And then he just gives a couple quick examples, and I'll, I'll move on in a moment. Peter was a bruised reed when he denied the Lord. And Mark, uh, this verse is just incredible. He denies the Lord three times with cursing. Remember that? And Mark 16, verse 7, the end of Mark's gospel, the women go to the empty tomb. There's a man there, an angel. And the angel has been told to give a message from Jesus to the women. And there's two words in the statement that are beyond, I mean, all, everything the angel says is astonishing. He's risen from the dead. He's not here. But this is the part that is, in this moment, particularly astonishing. The angel told the women, quote, but go tell his disciples, do you remember the next two words? And Peter, that he is going before you into Galilee. Why in the world did Jesus tell the angel to add the two words? Because Jesus is, a, is one of the disciples. Why add the word and Peter, the words and Peter? Because Peter knows he just did something horrible. He's the bruised reed. And Jesus goes, I want Peter to know especially, I haven't let go of him. He's repentant. I am forgiving. 
I have not let go. Number two, we mentioned it recently, Thomas, doubting Thomas, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and see in his side the mark of the spear, I will never believe. Is his faith dim? Yes. And yet the Lord appears to him and says, peace be to you. Put your fingers here, Thomas, and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus could have been angry justly at Thomas, but what does he do? He treats him with graciousness and reassures him. Paul, with his thorn in the side, he pleaded three times. The Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul says, I will boast in my weaknesses. And finally, we are sheep. We're weak. And Ezekiel 34 says, I myself, the Lord says, will be a shepherd of my sheep. I will seek the lost and bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. All right, we'll move to the last point more briefly. Point number three, he brings us hope and justice. This comes at the end of verse 18 and in verse 21. Look at the end of verse 18. I'll put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He'll proclaim justice to the Gentiles, verse 21, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Let me not miss there the end of verse 20. Until he brings justice to victory and in his name the Gentiles will hope. What what does this mean about him bringing justice to victory? One commentator says it like this. The servant's mission is to bring justice to the nations. While this includes, it includes judicial fairness, it goes much further and involves the establishing of a community in which God is honored and peace and harmony prevail when true justice comes. This will not be achieved as long as people worship competing gods in the context of Isaiah. Another writer says, a just world to Isaiah is human society as God means it to be with no corrupting idolatries. So when he brings justice, it means the world will be righteous, just. It will do as we are, we will do as we should do, as we are called to do. And when we do, guess what? God will be at the center of our lives, the center of our affections, and we will rightly love each other as we love ourselves. We will love each other rightly and truly. There will no longer be hypocrisy and lying and deceptiveness and coveting and cheating and stealing and all that will be gone. Instead, God will reign supreme. He will be the center and we will love each other truly and there will be no sense of insincerity in that love. And he says here, in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Romans 3 says it like this. It says, Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness, think his justice, his righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. When his name is proclaimed, not just to the Jewish world, but to all the nations, in him, in his name, the, the Gentiles will hope, that's all the world, as everyone hears of Jesus, how will they hear that he has brought justice to victory? Well, two quick things, I'll, and then I'll wrap up. First is this, if God simply brought divine justice down on this world, not one of us would stand that, that day. We would all fall under his judgment and we would be eternally condemned. 
but because Christ bore the sins of all His people, of all who will ever turn and trust Him on the cross and rose from the dead triumphant, all of us who are safe in Christ, we will be able to experience the final day of God's judgment and be safe in the beloved. And when we are safe in the beloved, the chosen one, Christ, the servant of God, who was faithful when we were faithless, when that is true, then we will survive the day of judgment. We will have a new creation, we will have new bodies, new creation, new earth, and we will be able to dwell in the divine presence forever without ever of any fear of God ever abandoning us or us ever turning our back on Him. Close with this. Whether you're a believer or you maybe would not consider yourself a believer, if you feel like, you know, I I want to be further in my relationship with the Lord than I am, wherever you're at, I'm going to give you a moment of just silence to pray and then I'll pray for us and we'll sing again. But in that moment of silence, I would ask you, Lord Jesus, please come and fan into flame whatever spark that might be there, or if there is no life spiritually in you yet, ask the Lord to ignite that flame and to increase it so that you would be able to truly trust Him and to follow Him. Let's bow our heads together. I'll give you a moment to pray silently, and then I'll pray for us. Heavenly Father, I ask right now, particularly for a person who might hear this text and see what is offered here of the kind of servant of the Lord, uh, the Son of God, what, what His character is like, that He will not raise His voice or cry aloud in the streets, a bruised reed, He will not break, and a faintly burning wick He will not put out. And I pray, God, for the person right now who hears that and just is bored, disinterested, and disengaged. Just, I, wanna, I just want to get out of here and think about something else. God, I pray that for that heart in particular, that you would open eyes, convict, br- bring the faith that convinces us and convi- gives us conviction of the truth of these things. Show the glory and the beauty of these things. Show our desperate need for a Savior like this outside of ourselves. And God, I pray that we would all turn and trust in this sinless Savior. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.